And then you've just got these British people who are just like, oh, I guess the Irish and the British are just the same. It's like, no, one of us comes from a colony and we're having this conversation in English because I wasn't allowed to speak my own language. And one of us comes from the Imperial Metropole. Welcome to Surviving Society. With Chantel Lewis and Tiso Regis. Executively produced by Georgia Fori Addo. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. This is a trigger warning. This episode at times contains conversations and sensitive material that people may find difficult to listen to. Welcome to another episode of Surviving Society. We are really excited today to have our first ever barrister on the show, Frank McGuinness. Frank is a barrister based in London. Frank is co-founder of the Legal Sector Workers United branch of United Voices of the World. Frank is co-founder of Materialist Lawyers Group. Frank describes himself as a communist lawyer. Frank, welcome to the show. It's really nice to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Frank, can you just tell, before we get into it, can you also tell the listeners, as well as being a barrister, a lawyer, and all the legendary things we've just read out, can you tell us what you're doing at the moment? Yeah, so to any solicitors listening who are thinking about instructing me, I am very much still accepting instructions as a barrister. Um, and I'm, I'm currently working on a really big case to do with um, an anti-Zionist uh, Jewish-Israeli client who's claimed asylum in Britain. Mm-hmm. Um, so still very much keeping up uh, my practice at the bar. Um, but I'm also working at a project that I helped to set up, which is called uh, the Learning Cooperative, which is a kind of international um, sort of educational pedagogical experiment, you could call it. Really, it's a workers cooperative where we um, are trying to pioneer this really radical approach to um, to education. So we we started with languages. We've got a tutor who's based in Gaza. So, um, so people who want to learn Arabic can learn from someone who's literally trapped under siege. We've got someone based in Venezuela who teaches... Spanish. So we've, we've just basically gone around the world and tried to go to all of the places where imperialism is at its sharpest and organise with people and organise them into a, a place where we can pay them to teach stuff. Um, so we're now moving beyond languages and trying to teach um, kind of skills. And that's where I come in. I'm, I'm trying to pioneer some kind of legal, pedagogical, like kind of spaces and courses and stuff. And I guess one of the key things I'm working on at the minute is I'm trying to pioneer this uh, confronting Israeli apartheid in British courts, course, mm-hmm. because apartheid has been so central to the arguments we're making in the case of my Jewish-Israeli clients, and we're trying to think about how we can deploy apartheid, which is a legal concept, in British courts, which is something that not many people really seem to be doing. Mm-hmm. So we're trying to create these spaces where we can really have like a radical conversation about legal knowledge, like how to train up lawyers and academics and activists so that they really understand these concepts, so they can be deployed in a more kind of like strategic and like powerful way. So, so that's what I'm doing for the next six months is trying to trying to work How through. This is a lot, man. Right. What's the difference? Well, listen. Before we start talking between a barrister, a solicitor, and a lawyer, because I feel people they watch a lot of TV like I do, and I think I know what a lawyer is. Yeah. When I see when I think a barrister, I think of the ones with the wigs. wigs. Yeah, that's correct. That is, wigs is a crucial part of the picture here. Um, basically, I think most countries have a sensible legal system where they just have lawyers. Um, whereas because England has such an ancient legal system, we have this kind of bizarre um, split profession that has survived throughout the ages. And then a lot of countries um, that used to be British colonies um, and current British colonies like the six counties um, still have this split profession. So basically, 
Barristers and solicitors are both lawyers. So barrister solicitor are a subcategory of the term lawyer. This, the, I suppose the simple way to describe it is that a barrister would tend to address the judge and would tend to spend time in court, whereas the solicitor would tend to speak to the client. So if a client has a legal problem, they'll usually approach a solicitor first, and then when it becomes necessary, the solicitor instructs a barrister and the barrister takes the case to court. But in practice, especially in the last few decades, that distinction has been blurred quite a lot, and that's because barristers can now directly approach clients cutting out the solicitor if they want to, and solicitors can also increasingly exercise what are called audience rights and attend a court, right? So basically, law- lawyer is the catch-all term. Barrister is the guy who tends to be um, on his feet talking. But but even then, that's an assumption because a lot of barristers won't even go to court. So okay. the simple answer is barrister addresses judges, solicitor addresses clients, but in practice, it's, it's slightly more complicated than that. That, that clears it up, man. I, I like that. That is. It's a nice really, little that concise. Yeah, I like this. Yeah. Right. The next question that I'm thinking, Frank, uh, Chantel introduced you as a communist first rather than a lawyer. So would you kind of like expand on that? Yeah, definitely. So I think um, I can, there's, there's sort of two ways to answer that question and maybe I'll touch on both, right? So like one thing is to say that like um, I think it's important to, to have these discussions about what we mean by communism. But the other thing then is to something we've thought about quite a lot and part of the reason why we set up the Materialist Lawyers Group is to think through specifically some of the like tensions and contradictions that emerge when you try to pursue communist politics at the same time as practicing law in a very racist, like imperialist, liberal legal system, right? So the, the simple answer to the question, why do I call myself a communist, is because basically, as, as you guys know, right, there's a class conflict between labor and capital, right, between workers and, and bosses. And that's kind of like the main thing that orders um, the totality of global class relations, right? And it, and it relates to things like imperialism. But really that class conflict, at the risk of being simplistic, that is it. There's a massive fight going on between workers and capital and we have to sort of pick a side. And it feels like conservatives side with capital very openly and like uh, radicals side with uh, the workers. And then you have these liberals who kind of like refuse to pick a side in the conflict and they just almost want to manage the conflict but never really maintain it in the interests of the workers. They don't actually want the workers to win. Now, I do want the workers to win, to overthrow existing class relations and to create a new society and like all that is solid will melt into air and all that kind of stuff. I, I want a revolution. And so within the category of radicals, I guess I call myself a communist because it feels like that's the um, that's the kind of subset of the radical tradition with which I identify the most. It's the, it's the subset associated with the, the Russian Revolution in 1917. Um, there are some really difficult questions to, to ask ourselves about the things that have been done in the name of communism, things like Stalinism. Like, we do have to have these difficult conversations about the communist tradition, but I just think the left is quite re- weak right now, especially in this country, and we're kind of encouraged to throw our traditions out. And it's like, they, it's like we think if we just rebrand that will somehow be more powerful. And I'm not sure I agree with that. Like, I think it's important for us to take the rough with the smooth, to um, to look honestly at the communist tradition um, and nevertheless to continue to identify with that project, the project of 1917. Um, and then as far as legal practice is concerned, the law is just like Marxists and, and communists are really underrepresented in the legal system. And I think it's really important to um, to basically subordinate your legal practice to a prior set of political convictions and I think when you do that, you can use law in quite a radical way. But if you don't, I think you get really lost in the liberal legal system. In a system that's, especially the British system, that's very ancient and has a, has a tendency to bias in a, of a particular way. How do you ha- how do you be radical in that space? With difficulty is the short answer. Like, um, it's really difficult. I, the first time I did a Crown Court trial, um, I, I got made a tenant uh, at my current chambers and they said... Um, you can draft your kind of public-facing web profile, right? So I, dro- I drafted this profile 
that was very honest. I was like, I'm a radical, I'm pro-Palestinian, I'm like uh, d- deeply committed to the Palestinian struggle to overthrow Israeli apartheid. Like, <laughs> oh, I, shit, you said that? Yeah. You said that to them? What no, do you so think? I, yeah, I said it on my profile. Because I was trying to be real. I was like, look, this is why I became a lawyer. I became a lawyer because Pal- before I was a communist, I became a, <laughs> I, became, I decided to become a lawyer. I just could... Stop more- laughing. Oh, no, me, no. I can imagine their face, they would have went, what the fuck, man? Yeah, well, this was kind of it. It's like, I mean, I'm not saying I've got it all right, but I think that what happened with the judge was... He was like, it was like, as I say, first time in front of a jury. He sent the jury home on like the second day of the trial or whatever. I was co-defending, so we had another defense barrister and then we had the prosecution barrister. So the three barristers have stood there and this judge just sort of said like, Mr. McGuinness, I've had the opportunity of reading your website. And then he like mentioned that he was a landlord. And obviously I've been railing against landlords in the profile. I've been like, you know, sort of like, he like backs... Um, you know, workers who've been kicked out of their homes. He's like familiar with like how to kick a landlord around court kind of thing. Obviously, I paraphrase. I was a bit more professional than that. But broadly, I was like, look, you know, you want to struggle against your landlord? Like, like instruct me, right? I'm I'm happy to like really go go at a landlord, right? And he, this judge is like, I'm a landlord, and I was a bit like, why are you saying this in court, bro? Like, this is bias. Like, why are you why are you biased against my profile? And the answer is because my profile was nakedly radical, and it, it does pose questions. It's like, people have come to me and said, is it in your client's interest? for you to be so openly identifying with this uh, controversial political tradition. And I sort of think, well, you can spend your life pretending to be something you're not. And there comes a time when you actually have to say, like, I am in favour of a revolution by which this entire bourgeois legal edifice will be overthrown. And, like, I don't have to hide that. Why do I have to hide that? <laughs> Sorry, George is having a... Yes! George is having a... Yes! No. Frank, I've got to give him a mic drop for that, like, see, 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 I've see, got to give see. him a mic drop. I guess what the problem is, in an environment where the law presents itself as neutral, when you take a position, it, it kind of flies in the face of that, well, surely that everyone has a position, right? Which we all know in reality, but the law presents itself as a neutral arbiter, right? It's objective. Then everyone stands, everyone, justice is, is, is blind, for mm. example. So when you take a position like that, it marks you out. And then so therefore, as a client, am I thinking, well, oh, this guy's like, he's he's done something that's it seems abnormal but right? then they don't have to have you as a client do they that's the They're, crucial you, point you're choosing mm-hmm. like you want frank 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 is going to defend frank, you frank's going to defend me firm very clear who you are <laughs> i think that's so right i think yeah i think this case i'm doing at the moment right this is um i was saying to you earlier chantelle this is the culmination of like you know i've been on my feet five years as we say so i've been practicing law for five years uh, doing a lot of asylum appeals and stuff, and and so it all kind of came to fruition with this case. And this guy, you know, this guy came to Britain, claimed asylum, and said, "I don't want to be returned to so-called Israel because I'll be conscripted into the military of an, an apartheid regime." And the solicitor who came to me, also a very very radical solicitor, um, who I've learned a lot from, like really like more experienced than me, been around the block more than I have. Um, and he sort of said, well, look, the reason I instructed you, Frank, is because I knew that no one else would have the guts to stand up in court and make these arguments. So you've got these liberals who are like, oh, you know, law's not political. And yet you've got a solicitor saying, I cannot find the barrister to make the argument, which we know needs to be made. We, How could you determine? So, you know, asylum is about saying I'm going to be persecuted, right? My guy's an anti-Zionist. How could you possibly determine that claim without considering whether Israel is governed by an apartheid regime whose animating ideology is Zionism. It's incoherent to try and determine an asylum claim without considering those arguments. And yet my solicitor is coming to me and saying, I can't find someone to run this argument. Mm. And so I think it's almost like nine, nine times out of 10, someone's going to look at my profile and be like, I don't want this guy. He's a troublemaker. He's going to run arguments in ways that annoy judges. Why would I instruct him? But one time out of 10, they're going to go, I want the guy who comes from the occupied six counties, who explicitly identifies with the communist tradition, that sort of says law is a sham, 
it is a it is a way of masking uh, and mystifying class relations. It's not fair. It's it's uh, deeply implicated in the reproduction of imperial capitalist class relations. Why should I go into court and pretend that I just, that I don't think that? Given that in your profession, people come from a certain echelon, like you say barristers, for example, your background from the six counties has that influenced your outlook massively. That's a nice little segue. So, bro, man's been reading that, and all that. You tell, get me? Please tell the listeners, yeah, Frank, just a bit about yourself, basically, how you came to be a radical lawyer and someone that's very much inspiring. Tiso and I sat here now. Like, I, I mean, just to say as well, like us as kind of sociologists that talk about um, matters of race and class, like. We don't we don't really believe that what we do can have material change, but we do believe in the power of knowledge production and education. But you're taking the things that we read and do and bringing it into life. And but no, you're part you're part of the instrument, right? Yeah, you're you're, the you're, instrument, you're, you're another tool. part of the. So you see you see the application of law, and um, so we talk about law in different ways. And I guess in sociology, it comes through like from Montesquieu and stuff like that, but we don't actually touch law in the way that you do. Right. And, but we, don't, think, and we can't change people's lives in the way that you do. No, so. I, I hear that, but I'm really I, I'm really wary of that framing because I think we are part of the coalition that storms power, right? We are the... Yeah, we are broad coalitions, but you're a different part of the coalition sure, that is and like it's, and it's exciting good. for us. It's, yeah, and, but, but yeah. Like vice versa. Like I'm so tempted by the idea of doing a PhD. I'm constantly thinking about... No, babe, we need, you, we need you. We need you fighting well, the home we, office we can the swap moment, pa- We, can we need swap you in the... We need you fighting the home office right now, babe. Leave the PhD for now. I hear that. But I think we need... The problem is we have a lot of lawyers with decent political instincts who get into it. We had a... The Materialist Lawyers Group held a really useful conference on this um, a a couple of months ago where we were... I think the problem is you have a lot of lawyers who come into it with with good ideas and they kind of think, oh, I want to fight the government in the government's own courts kind of thing. But they don't adopt a sufficiently critical attitude towards the legal sector and so what they end up doing is reproducing the very systems they claim to be criticising so you see this really really clearly with that's as- like academia well like with asylum yeah. law right asylum law basically is a codification of the racist idea that there are good migrants and bad migrants right that, let's be absolutely clear that's what it is right so like are you a good refugee or are you a bad economic migrant that is essentially the dichotomy that's being administered every time we go to the first tier tribunal and and so it's like well if you don't have a framework for completely obliterating that if all you do is go in and get asylum for an individual client that's good for that individual client but in the process you're legitimizing the very idea that there should be that, that we should be asking those questions right so i think it is it is like Gramsci on organic intellectuals is a helpful framework, right? Because then it's like we mustn't get stuck in this substitutionist thing. We mustn't imagine that what barristers are doing in court is radical because it's not. What's radical is the autonomous movement of the international working class. And that class um, sort of gathers uh, intellect, intellectuals that are organic to it. And that's how I try to conceive of myself. That's how at the Materialist Lawyers Group we're trying to, to conceive of this like very conscious understanding of what does it mean to be an organic intellectual lawyer who is organic to the to the international working class? But I, you were asking me about where I came from, and I've got yeah, completely distracted. No, 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 it's sick. All of that. No, we love Gramsci. Go, go, bring go. it in. Bring, but bring. yeah, so let's 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 roll back to Baby Frank. Well, so I think I, I think the question is useful because I think uh, it kind of helps us to think about how do we come to communism. I, I wasn't born a communist, and I, I I didn't really become a communist until my mid twenties. Yeah, like well, I, I guess my, the journey starts in Dublin, right? So I was born in Dublin, um, but then moved to. Uh, London when I was quite young, lived here until I was five and then moved to the six counties, which is where my uh, my father's from. 
And so I grew up I grew up in the six counties, in, which is a very divided. I mean, you, you can't even really call it post-colonial because it's still a colony, right? Like um, a very, very divided society, very, very violent society. And that's because of hundreds of years of British imperial policy, which was to divide Catholics and Protestants against each other. And, and the legacy is still being felt, right? And so I, I grew up in a place called South Armagh, right, which is where, you know, a lot of the bombs that um, that that blew up British towns in the in the in the 70s and 80s the sort of so-called mainland bombing campaign they they were built where i grew up so i grew up in in ira territory really um but then i i, I guess my dad because he didn't want me to grow up with a sectarian outlook he sent me to school in a, in a protestant school in a, in a in a town called banbridge and so i had this very sort of caps like collapsed identity i didn't really fit into the north of ireland's um simple like um two tribes right i, I didn't fit in the catholic community because i went to a protestant school didn't fit in the Protestant community because I lived in South Armagh, right? So, sort of moved to um, so had these very Irish Republican politics. Was like very, very in favour of United Ireland, and then moved to to Essex when I was sixteen, and then moved to LSE to do my undergrad when I was uh, eighteen, right? So, been living in London since I was eighteen, and I think it was Irish Republicanism that led me to to communism, and that's because it's when I was at LSE, I discovered pro-Palestine solidarity, and I think when you come from Ireland, then when you come from the Irish Republican tradition. Solidarity with Palestine is a very intuitive thing, uh, and so I was—I I became a lawyer off the back of a, a good mate of mine. He, he, he's not a communist by any stretch of the imagination, but he is very—he's a second-generation Palestinian man, and he was doing law at LSE at the time. And he said, "Mate, we need to become barristers and prosecute these Israeli war criminals." And that is why I became a, a barrister. I was that I wanted to prosecute Israeli war criminals, and then it was in the course of training to be a barrister. It's not quite as easy to just land a gig prosecuting Sibi Livni or whatever. So. Uh, you sort of get caught into the other kind of political things that you can do. And so I got into immigration law. I got into defend inside housing law. I got into criminal defense. And then you kind of develop this practice. And then it's and then it's in the course of exploring that, you know, an Irish Republican framing just wasn't satisfying. It, like, it, 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 it doesn't take you far enough. It doesn't take you far enough in critically interrogating what you find problematic about reality. And so it leads you to look outwards and you look to Palestine. And then it's as you knock about in these spaces, you get exposed to the, to, to the far more satisfying kind of total theory of reality that is like a kind of communist view of the world, right? Where you have this account of the totality of class relations. And then it's like, I guess, once once you have that thread, you just keep pulling on it and it just leads you to all these really fascinating conclusions. And, and specifically in a legal context, that's why we set up Materialist Lawyers Group, because we were like, we are communists. We have these communist politics. I set up with these, these two other communist lawyers and it's kind of spiraled from there. And we have we have many more members now. But it was it, it stemmed from this deep sense of dissatisfaction that like we have these radical politics. We have this radical political agenda. And yet every day we're going into court and pretending to respect the legal system that actually we want to overthrow. Like, and how do you, you just feel like you're going a bit crazy. You feel like you sort of have to, like, like there's this double thing going on or something where you, you address a judge and pretend to respect the legal system and then you step out of court and say, I'm a communist and I'm in favour of overthrowing it. And it's like, it's this attempt to, 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 to reconcile the irreconcilable. Do you know what's sick about Frank though, T? Because he like knows all like the law and stuff, he can just say stuff because he, like, so sometimes if we would talk, sometimes if we would talk in this way in an academic space or an, an institution, we, like we, people would come to us about freedom of speech and basically bad faith arguments but because you know your shit so coherently 
you're you're doing freedom of speech right now, aren't you? Like, sure. So- yeah, I think that's true. But I also think it's important to recognise the serious ways in which um, lawyers are constrained in what we say. Okay. Like, um, like I have tried to really push the limit of what it's possible to say, but the fact is, I'm regulated, right, by the Bar Standards Board. Right. Um, I mean, we were talking previously. Like, some of the, I've said some very pro-Palestinian things. I've said some very anti-Zionist things because I am an anti-Zionist, right? Mm-hmm. And um, people come for you. Like when you say that as a professional, they oh, come. No, and- I wasn't saying that people wouldn't come to you. I'd come for you, but I was just saying you legally, you're okay. You can do that though, can't you? Well, well. To be clear, I think that um, I just know where the red lines are. Yeah, that's <laughs> what I'm, yeah, 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 yeah. And I know how yeah. it pans out as well yeah. because it's like um, because I've seen it pan out and I've represented people who've like you know been fired from their jobs for saying things and like you just uh, you, you it does. Like I got, maybe this is a bit narcissistic, right? But I got arrested at a picket line. It was a pretty good week for me. Like it's not bad. Wait, for say your that street. again. You got arrested. I got arrested again. at a picket line, right? So I was I was working at UVW at the time. I was on the common at UVW, and uh, UVW very radical base union that is like um like sort of like trailblazer doing really uh, organizing the unorganizable kind of thing. And there was a bunch of comrades out on strike at St George's University, and so there was a picket line. I showed up to the picket line, and all the cops showed up. And they were like, everyone here is committing an offence. And I was like, mm, that doesn't sound right. What, what do you want about? And the, the cop got his, like, they were doing this for like, like, it was almost an hour. They were like threatening to arrest everyone. And I was like, you definitely can't arrest everyone. The cop got the statute up on his phone, right? It was Section 119 of the Borders Criminal Justice, uh, it, it, Borders Criminal Immigration Act 2009 or something. And he was like, oh, it's committing an, an offence on NHS property. No, committing a nuisance, sorry, on NHS property. And I was like, in what sense is us sitting around having a conversation with you a nuisance? But also, the statute says anyone who, without reasonable excuse, do you think that a lawful picket line might amount to a reasonable excuse? And I was like, and I was sort of saying, I was like, I was like, the judge is already laughing at you because he was, he, because I was just wearing a hoodie, or whatever. He clearly didn't, I wasn't wearing a suit. I didn't look like a lawyer, and he was just like, who's this mouthy Irish guy who's just making me look like an idiot in front of all these people that I'm threatening to arrest? And he was like, if you don't leave now. I'm going to arrest you for committing a nuisance. And I was like, how is me having a conversation with you a nuisance? And then he just put the cuffs on me, and I was like. You can't do that. And I was like, Section 24 of Pace, you need to, like, I was like, you need to, like, believe that I have committed, am committing, or I'm about to commit an offence. And I was like, I was talking to him in the third person. I was like, here's why I'm going to sue him. Here's how I'm going to sue him. And then after four minutes, he was like, he like he was like, if I de-arrest you, will you go away? <laughs> like he was clearly like, because everyone's like, oh my god, you just arrested a barrister and all this kind of stuff. But you know, so it, so it, it is easy for me to be narcissistic about that because it was like me being a like whatever like loudmouth like and and and, I've, and I'm suing the cops and like it's going very well. But I just think I just think it's important not to substitute like the, what what was what was cool about that was there was a bunch of workers in dispute with their boss. The cops showed up and tried to intimidate us. And between us, we resisted them and said, if you mess with our picket lines, we will find ways to get back at you. Partly that, partly it will be that we'll just come back tomorrow and you won't get rid of us. Partly it will be that we've got, we're plugged into the best lawyers in the country and we, we will sue you. So like, they've, they've, you know, they're, they're going to basically pay me thousands of pounds for arresting me. And I'm just going to put that straight in, the, straight in the strike fund. But I, I guess my point is like, it would be easy for me to get lost in like, oh, look at me. I can like, I argue with cops in court all the time. Like a big part of my job is demolishing cops in front of juries, right? Just like completely tearing them apart. It's quite an intellectually violent thing to do to a person, right? The cop comes to court and says, your guy's guilty. I'm, I'm going to send him to prison. And, and you have to sort of say, you don't know what you're doing. You're, like you're, um, you're not a proper professional. You're lying. You, you get to say all this to, to, to police officers. I need a pocket frank. I need a pocket frank. But we mustn't. It's so easy to get lost. The bar just throws all of this. Uh, the, 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 the British establishment is, is obsessed with barristers. And barristers are not the working class. And so this is why I'm saying we have to not lose sight of like, what does it mean to be an organic intellectual that doesn't substitute yourself for the class. But you can see why. If we, if we take it back and we can understand that 
Britain's a colonial space, right? So lawyers are effectively how they took over most of the world, right? Through legal contracts. It's understanding those legal contracts. They, 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 they give people rights and rights are... And, 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 probably, and you can acquire stuff so you can understand the importance of a barrister or people or being that legal system so you can understand why it's reified yep. so intellectuals sorry academics when they come to the table we talk we talk in a critical way but there's no real payoff no real impact on that well this is what we mean about praxis right mm-hmm. so we need a theory and a practice and part of the reason we set up I mean the main reason we set up materialist lawyers group was because we noticed there were a lot of practicing lawyers mm. who didn't have a proper theory of law. And it's very difficult to find. You can go through a lot of law schools, um, especially the kind of the, the you know, the, the so-called best law schools in this country, places like Oxford, Cambridge, like they don't have a lot of critical lawyers there. And you don't, there are some, but it's very difficult to get a proper critical legal education that sort of says, what you get is you get the, all these debates about like um, positivism versus natural law, but you don't get like uh, Pashikanis, right? Who was like a Soviet legal theorist, you may know, right? Like who developed this general theory of law and Marxism. You don't get uh, Duncan Kennedy. I mean, he's at Harvard, but Duncan Kennedy, like, I discovered Duncan Kennedy through my own research. I didn't Who is get Duncan it. Kennedy? Duncan, Ke- Duncan Kennedy is like uh, one of the best known legal academics of his generation. I think he's still knocking about, but I think he might have retired now. But he's got this seminal essay, which, you know, any law students thinking about becoming lawyers um, definitely need to read his essay. Um, it's called Legal Education is Training for Hierarchy. So he's basically a, uh, trained as an economist, but then um, made his name as a, a Marxist legal academic. But like... You know, I did a I did a master's degree in law at LSE, and they didn't tell me anything uh, Marxist. There's a there's a handful of Marxists in the law department there, but um, but a lot of it is really uncritical. And also, some of the best legal academics aren't in practice, and so they don't really know how to tell you. Like, oh, by the way, you know, you're gonna have to stand up in front of a deeply racist judge and allege that the police are racist, and he's gonna be fundamentally unsympathetic to that. And you have to think as a matter of strategy and tactics about what you're gonna do about that. They don't really teach you this stuff in law school. Mm. Uh, And so this is why I was saying I'm doing a six month kind of, uh, you know, trying to create these pedagogical spaces because I wasn't taught this stuff. I wasn't taught here's how you be a communist and subordinate your legal practice um, to a prior political strategy. And so, you know, when I was I was saying about this conference we had earlier, we had this amazing conference with uh, uh, one of the one of the people um, who shut down Stansted Airport, right? Stansted 15. So we had Mel Strickland. She's a qualified solicitor. And she was saying like, no disrespect to the criminal defense lawyers who obviously were, were formidable in, in defending those 15 defendants. But she was saying she wished they had been more political. And so there's this question where it's like, look, you have your legal strategy. If you stand up in court in front of a jury and say the Crown Court judge is an ambassador of a colonial racist regime and it's that same regime that we were attacking when we shut down that airport, how can this judge possibly hear this case fairly when he's so openly implicated in reproducing the colonial edifice that pays his wages? If you say that, it's not legally a very good strategy because the judge is going to have a hissy fit. But politically, it's explosive, right? And that's what we were trying to explore is that, like, look, sometimes there are these rare cases where you can go into court and say, we're not subordinating our political strategy to our legal strategy. We're doing it the other way around. So when there's a clash and the lawyers are all saying, if you do that, it will reduce your chances of an acquittal, there are times when the clients have to turn around and say, when the comrades have to turn around and say, we went into this with our eyes open. We are not afraid of the possibility of going to prison or whatever else the consequences may be, being being deported. So like my client, you know, Someone might come to my, my uh, Jewish-Israeli client and say, well, if you run this apartheid argument, what if you antagonize the judge? It might make it more likely for you, for you to be removed. And there are some, you have to advise your client accordingly, but there are people who are willing to actually really go into these 
um, these these spaces that we call courtrooms and to say this is a very rarefied atmosphere where the constitution itself is being administered and we can go into those spaces and say I do not respect this constitution I want to disrupt it you see when I say, when I hear you speak and I speak about the way, the way you just spoke just now it makes me think of like definitely the Irish Republican tradition people are willing to go to prison hunger strikes to effect change in the law right to, yeah. to pressure the law to change that is truly revolution but i what i see in today's i guess today's zeitgeist is that lack of revolutionary zeal people people talk about it and may and may want to be about it but going to prison for that thing i think it's a lot of posers and it's understandable because it is a big thing to be a revolutionary and i think i i do derive a lot of strength from having come not just from the Irish Republican tradition, but but from having grown up in the six counties. There's a kind of common sense there um, and a, a, an, under, an understanding of what the British Army is. Uh, it is a colony. The Irish Sea is a gulf. When it comes to political understanding, Like it's very, very different over there. I had some contact with people in six counties and, and the IRA, so I, have, I kind of have a bit of a background. I understand. So when I hear you speak that, that's that kind of zeal that they have. and But that, that lens makes you see makes you understand struggle in a different way yeah exactly I, I i have this anecdote that people who know me have heard way too many times and i've you you may have even heard it before i'm not sure like tanzel's definitely heard it um but basically there was this moment when i was training and i was doing what's called pupillage right which is the year-long apprenticeship that you have to do as the final step of becoming a barrister and we went to this away weekend um and it was quite a useful sort of advocacy weekend where they were training you how to do your job better and in the evenings we would dine together and I found myself um, dining next to this um, judge who was talking about Jeremy Corbyn. And he said, oh, you know, the, the trouble with Jeremy Corbyn, he'll never be elected because he's an IRA sympathiser. Now, the posh voice is really good, actually, by the yeah, way. Well, yeah, well, I spend enough time <laughs> hanging out with posh people, don't I? Uh, so, like, um, so I'm sat there and I had a few glasses of wine and I was like, am I going to bite my tongue? Because where I come from, there's loads of critical support for the IRA. Like, Bobby Sands got elected to Parliament, for God's sake. Like, the, like the IRA clearly had a lot of support in the Catholic community, especially after 1972 and the, the British Army massacred... 14 people on Bloody Sunday, right? A lot of people were like, they're shooting us dead in the streets. I'm not going to take this line down. That's that's a, a massive reason for why there's so much support for the IRA. So instead of just letting this this um, ignorant man uh, sort of like um, chat shit about the Irish Republican tradition, I just turned to him and said, what's wrong with sympathising with the IRA? Which is not... Uh, <laughs> it's not a statement. I didn't say that there is nothing wrong with it. I asked a question. I said, what's wrong with sympathising with the IRA? Yeah, yeah. And he said, well, they're murderers. So I said, well, if it's murder you care about, perhaps you can explain how many hundreds of thousands of Iraqis the IRA are responsible for murdering. And he said, you need to calm down. And I said, I'm perfectly calm. I'm perfectly calm, hand is steady. But if I'm not, it's because I'm tired of British people who know nothing about it using my country's history as a political football to try and attack the left. And then obviously for the rest of the weekend I was the IRA sympathiser but I'm sorry but there's Sinn Féin MPs like who obviously refuse to take their mm -hmm. seats in Parliament right now Sinn Féin is the political wing of the IRA like yeah. the British establishment never recovered from the trauma of Bobby Sands being elected to their Parliament and these days something like 30-35% of the constituencies in, in so-called Northern Ireland are, um, are, are occupied by people who are like are the political wing of the IRA like I mean the IRA is obviously disbanded but it's like it's a legitimate political position that like vast swathes of the six counties support that uh, political position certainly down south 
there's a lot of support for that position and certainly internationally there's support for that position hmm. but these British judges they inhabit this bubble where they just think the IRA is this weird aberration that just came out of nowhere they've completely lost sight of as I said to this guy hundreds of thousands millions of people that the British Empire has murdered over the years lose sight of things like the Irish famine it's, it's something I really want to talk about is this, co- this concept of Irish invisibility like you guys will be familiar with um, Noel Ignatiev's seminal uh, book right yeah yeah, 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 right? yeah, yeah. it's so important and, I feel like, and it's like yeah. what's so vital about his thesis is that he's saying look race is a, is is a concept that changes depending on geography it changes depending on time it it changes depending on social context right so he's basically in that book as you know right he's basically saying like look you could be irish in the 19th century and and be very seriously materially racially dominated by british imperialism right irish famine violence prevented from speaking your own language all this racialization right and then you can get on a ship to america and you can become white and that's that's the kind of answer to the question in the title is how do you become white answer you change your geographical context and your racial position changes and 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 suddenly in america the class conflict is between uh freed black slaves and uh, uh, uh different different kinds of european white working class and they are encouraged the, the irish are therefore encouraged to step in into whiteness and uh, as, as a means of perpetuating the kind of racism that's operating in America. I think a lot of people on the British left have completely lost sight of that and they sort of think like, oh, Bobby Sands was white, which is insane. The man was like, the man was put in prison for 10 years and went on hunger strike to prove that he was a legitimate political prisoner. And then you've just got these British people who are just like, oh, I guess the Irish and the British are just the same. It's like, no, one of us comes from a colony and we're having this conversation in English because I wasn't allowed to speak my own language and one of us comes from the Imperial Metropole. That is a really important political but, distinction. But I think, I think they understand that. So you have a similar action when you have, when the kind of British states looks at like Kenya and the, and the Kikuyu people, the commonly known as the Mau Mau, right? Mm. So there's no speak of it, there's no mention of it, even though there's, a, there's court cases going through, there's, they don't mention it. Yeah. And it's that same for the same it's actually they understand what's happened, but they don't want to talk about it. Yeah. They don't want to talk about it because but, because no, because they understand the nature of oppression. But I guess and I and I guess one of the things that Frank's talking about that obviously we talk about on this show that is mm. just so frustrating is British exceptionalism. Like Britain is allowed to position itself as above terrorism, as above violence, as the the ultimate like civilizing um nation, when in fact our ancestors, the empire, we are all like products of but, vi- of a violent regime that has historically been hmm. yeah but, like but, but what's interesting positioned is, itself as not violent. But this is a European position. It's it's like it, so I was looking at the kind of Poland uh, Belarus situation at the moment. What's that? I, at the border of Poland and Belarus, they are using trying to immigrate well refugees trying to get it from one to the other. I think from Belarus to Poland. Yeah. But Poland part of the EU say no. And Belarus are saying you can't come back. So the, the argument EU are saying that Belarus are weaponizing migrants and the EU are saying we, we don't want any more. Mm. But with the people stuck in the middle, they said, well, not they said, they paraphrase, we're here because you were there. Mm. Yeah. And, it's, and it's that push and pull factor, right? Europe and Britain, we were there, right? Mm. Right. So to bring it back to law, that's a really, I think it's a really important point you've touched on, right? Um, and this is something I was touching on earlier, right? Is that if you go into a, an immigration case, without a critical theory of the border, you will just reproduce the border. And some of your clients might make it through and you might be able to prove that your clients are good migrants or whatever, but we are still reproducing a fundamentally racist system. And there's a brilliant book by John Smith, right, that you may be aware of, right, called um, Imperialism in the 21st Century, right? And it's honestly, before I read that book, despite being a communist and all and like trying to really grasp for a theory of the border, I didn't really understand what national borders were or where they came from. And he just 
he basically marries the Leninist tradition of anti-imperialism with the Marxist tradition of like value theory and like theories of exploitation, right? And he basically says, look, imperialism, which is a theory that was properly first properly sketched out from a Marxist standpoint by Lenin, is essentially about super exploitation in the global south, right? And that's why we need these national borders is that if you want people in Bangladesh to have incredibly low wages, you need to stop them from coming to places where there's incredibly high wages and then sending like um, the, the surplus home like back home, basically, like remittances, right? And so that's where the border comes from. The national border is a really, like so-called national border, the EU border. These borders are a really important economic mechanism by which capital, it's a strategy that capital pursues to divide the international working class and to segment it into sections like places like Bangladesh where you have these sweatshops, you have kids working in sweatshops, making our clothes. If, if, um, if the national border was abolished tomorrow, that is the single biggest thing that you could do to equalize wealth, betwe- wealth between uh, between nations. So we need to, as lawyers, we need to understand that and understand that we're kind of really complicit in reproducing a deeply racist uh, state form, which we call the national border. And again, a massive part of what Materialist Lawyers Group is trying to do is to foster that kind of critical consciousness so that the question doesn't become, how do I be- how do I be a radical lawyer, which is what a lot of well-meaning people ask. The question is, is it possible to do anything radical in a courtroom? Because the answer might be no. And if, and if, if the answer is yes, it will be in a tiny margin of cases. And we want to identify where that margin is and to understand what it means to really pursue a kind of what we call a rupture strategy, right? How do you really try to provoke a break with capitalism as part of a legal practice, but in circumstances where the legal practice is totally subordinate to a prior like political movement, a, a mass movement of the international working class? And the key context in which this rupture concept comes from, right, comes to us from this guy Jacques Valger, who was like a French like a uh, lawyer in Algeria, in, in fr- French-occupied um, Algeria. And obviously you had the FLN, right? The, fr- the uh, Front Libération Nationale or whatever. Mm. And um, and that was a mass movement. A million, More than a million Algerians had to die to get the French out of Algeria. Yeah. And it was in that context that you could go into a court, pursue a rupture strategy. The colonial court is saying, you're, you're charged with these terrorism crimes. The defendant turns around and says, I don't recognise the jurisdiction of this court. And you're right that the IRA did something similar. The Irish Republicans would go into... These, these sham courts, diplock courts without any juries that were convened in the six counties to administer Britain's colonial occupation. And they would go in, they would speak Irish, and in Irish they would say, we don't recognise the jurisdiction of this court. But you see, so I guess we kind of touched on that last year. So what what I kind of think the term is, see the politics, politics of conviction, right? So you're talking about people who have a very a very staunch conviction about a certain thing. And last year in when we had um, Black Lives Matter 2020, we thought we had politics, politics conviction, but we found that by, by June 2021, people stopped reading those books, man. It'd be interesting to know how the renewed uprisings and movement of Black Lives Matter in 2020, June 2020, has impacted the courtroom. Yeah. Just Um, anecdotally. Well, these are, these are, um, so a lot of that has to do with criminal defence. I know that there's a, there's an organisation called Black Protest Legal Support that a lot of comrades were involved in setting up. I don't think it's an explicitly Marxist organisation, but it's definitely doing quite useful work going to these protests and kind of legal observing, as we call it, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And when people get arrested, trying to make sure they get proper legal advice. Um, and I know that a lot of the legal observers themselves have been arrested. And so yeah. that erases these kind of civil liberties issues about like, well, if you're arresting legal legal, but yeah, that's bad, isn't it? Well, so they're suing the cops as well. And then I think they're also bringing these judicial review proceedings, right? So they're trying to challenge the Met Police's and other police forces policies on this stuff to sort of say you need a policy that sort of safeguards the constitutional function of legal observers so that they're not just getting arrested. And I think it's been happening again. 
Uh, I might be wrong about that, but I think that there's been some, some more arrests recently of, of legal observers. I don't want to say anything that's not true, but th- that's my understanding. And so that's been part of the picture. Um, I do also think it's kind of uh, 2011 London riots kind of vibes, yeah, where it was yeah. like the courts did this very ideological thing of sort of understanding like, oh, this was a riot and this was this real kind of like very ill-formed but very threatening um, force that was emerging that was a threat to established power and and the police kind of lost control of the city I mean there's different narratives around this right did the did the police lose control of the city did they deliberately let like racialized working class communities tear themselves apart like I, I don't have a stable view on that but what what's clear from a legal perspective is that you had these famous cases of people getting six months in prison for, for lifting a bottle of water or whatever and that was the state kicking in like to the extent that judges had like discretion and stuff using that discretion to send a lot of people to prison in this like sort of super conveyor belt approach to to justice and and, i mean that just poses these quite practical problems but i think in this country we struggle because it is the imperial core and the working class in this country like regardless of their immigration status or all the rest of it does derive a certain benefit merely by virtue of being here right if you have a heart attack in this country you're going to get rushed to some of the best hospitals in the world if you're in bangladesh or sudan or iraq you're you're in a very different situation right and we need to be conscious of the the legal consequences and the political consequences that flow from that. But I also think it's really vital to think about there have been moments in this country's history when you did have a genuine mass movement of the working class. You had the general strike in, was it, 1926? You had uh, the miners' strike in 1984-85. That was an example of where the working class was so powerful and so willing to fight that they were totally ignoring courts. Like you had courts coming and saying, you can't go on strike and if you do, we're going to sequester all your assets. And the National Union of Mine Workers just went, do it we'll just deal in cash and they, they were like we are not backing down and that's when you see the state bossing in police forces to as, as like paramilitary like violence to attack the institutions of the working class that's the level of industrial militancy we need to reach and i think the blm stuff is trying to um, to, to, get, to get to that stage and that's and that's why we need to show it critical support but i agree there's a real risk that it will get co-opted by liberals who aren't interested in that level of class antagonism but this is saying in a, in a post-factual world where you can we say it's post-thatcher well, no, well I mean the li- as in the yeah, literal yeah, post-thatcher so yeah, yeah. In, in, this, in this environment where union power is is weak in fact anecdotally when I joined when I joined work someone said do you want to join the union I was like no way but my first my instant, instantaneous reaction was no way but I didn't understand at the time but that's how that's how ingrained this kind of anti-unionist feeling is, right? Totally agree with that. I think, I think um, from a legal perspective, I really want to write this piece, but again, practice at the bar just stops me having time to properly think about stuff. But I really want to, I've been, this piece has been gestating for ages in my head, right? Where the key piece of legislation in this country, there's a few key pieces of legislation in this country that we would need to attack if we were serious about a kind of Corbyn style government, right? Some of it is to do with the border, right? Immigration Act 1971, British Nationality Act 1981. Those would be key pieces of legislation you would want to attack. And then all of this like Blairite legislation that kind of tacked on horrible, oppressive stuff onto the, the border regime created by those two acts, right? Border and nationality. But really, the, the crucial act that stops the working class in this country from acting, beyond the racialized border which divides the working class against itself, is the Trade Union Labor Relations Consolidation Act 1992. Every socialist, every communist should know the name of that act. And I don't think we do. And that's tell us an, about it. Tell us about it's it. an indictment of the Labour Party, right? They don't tell us about it because that is the key consolidation of Thatcherite class relations, right? She goes to war almost literally on the most powerful trade union in this country in 1984-5. She wins 
that inflicts a massive kind of psychological scar, but also a political scar on the left in this country. Other unions thinking about going all the way and going toe-to-toe to with the government are going to be like, we can't have that happening to us. It was brutal. It was violent. Like, And so um, that political, almost physical victory is then consolidated in the 1992 Act, which is the act that makes it incredibly difficult to go on strike in this country, right? You want to go on strike in this country, there's all kinds of hurdles that you have to jump through. It's incredibly bureaucratic. And it, and it is, if I may say, profoundly ironic that Thatcher, who's this neoliberal who says we need to deregulate everything, passes this act that says, oh, by the way, if you want to go on strike, it's going to be hyper-regulated, right? So neoliberalism isn't really about deregulation. It's about deregulating capital and hyper-regulating the labor market, whether it's in racialized ways to do with the border or in uh, in workplaces to do with um, stopping people from going on strike. And so it seems to me that we need to build trade unions. We need to build the institutions of working class power. We need to confront the border to stop it from dividing the working class against itself on racial lines. And once we build those institutions, those institutions need to pick fights with our enemies and we need to win those fights. And when we start to build that working class power, we will then be able to consolidate the reality, the fact of our social power will um, will be consolidated in the repeal of that act and those acts and their replacement. Uh, I mean, I... I don't want to advocate a, a legislative approach per se, but it, 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 it's kind of like non-reformist reforms type vibes. If you broke the back of the 1992 Act and made it possible to go on strike easily again in this country, you would massively empower workers to, to take action. You win these court cases, you cause these ruptures, right? So you found a effectively bad law, air quotes, right? So how do you replace bad law? You definitely, like... You can kind of quibble with it in court, but you can't replace it in court. And that's okay. the key problem, right? Mm. And, that's, and that's what I'm saying about we mustn't get all caught up in the bar's own story that it tells about itself. Like the Bar of England and Wales is a deeply reactionary place and there is a very, very limited amount of potential for radical political change. Uh, if we are to try and intervene in, in courts as a site of class struggle, we need to do it on the basis of a very clearly thought through strategy. Um, and ultimately, I mean... This, the liberal answer is you change the law by passing an act of parliament. But I think the, the more complex an- answer is that you change the law by creating a coalition of social forces that is powerful enough to hold its political representatives to account. And a massive problem that we have, I mean, a, a massive problem that we have in this country is that the Labour Party is not accountable to the institutions of working class power. And that's a massive problem that I think, you know, critical support for people in momentum, but they've really... Um, failed to think strategically like in in more than five years of having left positions of power in the Labour Party they've really failed to think through what a socialist strategy would actually look like um, and you know Momentum's going through a refounding process at the moment mm-hmm. and I think if it doesn't if it doesn't properly find an answer to the question of what does a left-wing strategy look like which is your, your question right how do you actually change mm-hmm. laws how do you actually change um, the, the balance of class forces like the answer is that the state of class consciousness and political education in this country is so low yeah. that the answer is we have to we have to start thinking about your question because we don't have a proper answer and we certainly don't have institutions that have kind of formulated an answer in the form of a strategy and like we don't have organizations that are pursuing a coherent socialist strategy and it's a real problem because it's mm-hmm. urgent like the the global class like a uh, conflict and the kind of the crisis of capitalism the ecological and environmental aspect of that is reaching a fever pitch and yet in this country in particular we find ourselves in complete political disarray in the in the wake of um, corbynism and its collapse can you talk to us number one about the police police crime and sentencing bill can you talk about that i don't know a massive amount about it but i can i can say some the stuff risks, some the risks some of the risks for it just basic basic things about what, what it's going to be attacking and also can you talk to us about you you um you, you mentioned that you've been you defend you've been defending quite a lot of people over the past few years in terms of asylum um cases. 
can we talk about the home office a little bit as well yeah. and like what are the risks are like how we can how people can resist within their everyday lives as well as like having people like you in the courtroom that's taken on pretty Vital. totally so um i mean i guess the first thing to say is that both of those things are to do with the home office right home mm-hmm. office deals with both the border and with the cops and and i guess some people would say that those are kind of like two uh, branches of the same like attempts to racialize and police the the working class this new bill um i haven't followed it as closely as some of my comrades at um mlg uh and in my chambers and stuff just because i think a lot of it will relate to um to criminal defense and i know there's a lot of stuff in there about criminalization of um, gypsy roma traveler communities um so that that's a big part of it and and I guess uh, the Tory party went into that last general election with like naked racism in their manifesto. And, and in many ways, this bill is the kind of the legislative consolidation of that naked racism. Um, and again, it's in the case of GRT communities, I think it's um, partly it's to do with the classic divide and rule strategy of trying to divide sections of the working class against itself by recourse to these racialization strategies. But also, I think there's something really profound about um, GRT uh, way of life or the way that some GRT communities choose to live, right, which is often quite a nomadic existence. It's less tethered to the labor market. I think in many ways that community actually does prefer, pose a really powerful, um, almost like critique, this embodied critique of like capitalist ways of living, right? These yeah. super sedentary, like city-based, uh, like uh, w- uh, living where we're all dependent on uh, the wage fund. And so I think that's part of why that bill is is really criminalizing that community. I do also know... Um, I know a bit about some of the protest that's gone on around that bill. And specifically, I know there was some stuff about reclaim these streets. Criminalizing protest. Yeah. Like, that's scary. It is scary. And I suppose it's, I suppose it's what you'd expect from quite an authoritarian Tory government with an 80 seat majority or whatever. Like, um, I, I think in some ways it is scary. Um, but I also think it's a sign of their weakness. I think that I've spoken to some Tories about this, where they do sort of, they can, you know, the kind of, there's a liberal kind of civil liberties kind of wing within Toryism. Yeah. As contradictory as that might sound. And a lot of those people are disturbed by it. They can see they're like this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, you're right. And do you know what, Frank? You make a really good point about it showing their weakness because it is a power. Obviously, like, they do so much power grabbing because they're authoritarian capitalists right now that are running the country. But, like, it, it does show the flimsiness of what they're actually trying to do because it's 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 very direct. It's less. It's not as passive. It's not as kind of long term. E obviously, well, although if it's well, it's law, a crisis it's like, of liberalism, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like it kind of it it, it feels slightly rem- reminiscent of the end days of Thatcher. Although I don't necessarily think we could say we're in the end days of um, Boris Johnson's uh, Tory government at the moment, but like how you go so far and things like 1997 become an inevitability because you pushed it too much you pushed your you pushed your tories too much do you know what, do you know what i mean yeah but i guess but i guess i would say 1997 was continuity thatcherism it yeah. was about um forging this bipartisan consensus where the tories didn't even need to be in government because the labor party was so beholden to the set of class relations and yeah. i come back to the 92 act right we had 13 years of a labor government so-called labor government that didn't do anything to touch that piece of legislation yeah. that was disempowering the working class yeah. so really we're living through neoliberalism which in this country is sometimes called Thatcherism, but neoliberalism continues, but it's in its death throes. It's in a crisis, and we can know that it's in a crisis because this authoritarian legislation is being passed by a Tory government that has a majority. The BBC is, like, lurching to the right. Um, like, they ha- the, 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 the right in this country has 
so much power and yet it still complains about being silenced and all this kind of like cancel culture type vibes. And it's because they know that actually there was something very paradoxical going on with Corbynism. It's almost like, I don't want to be too playful with my analogies, but like post-1945, post-Second World War, there's that famous kind of Churchill quote about saying like basically the Labour Party needed to win, otherwise there was going to be a revolution. And I think we're not quite at that revolutionary stage because that's... The, no, the, yeah, the, I hear you though. I hear what you're saying. Like they know it the does count- feel... They the do, counter-argument, the counter-movement uh, running out. They're running out of steam. And we talk about this all the time on the show about how you don't actually want to debate with us because if you want to debate with us, we would be starting from a place but, of an equitable exchange, but you don't. You just want a certain politic and a certain history. I think but, but, I, but I think we have to be clear, right, that the Tory party as it is, is meant to be a broad church. We're speaking about a very particular group of Tories, right? Yeah. These right-wing authoritarian types because those ones that are into civil liberties, they're probably what, what they used to call the wets, mm. probably like more liberal, like a Ted Heath type. Yep. So there's always been a historical broad church. But also I would like to add, you have to remember, when Winston Churchill was Home Secretary, he was the one that smashed at the strikes in 1926. Yeah. But yet they voted him in in the nineteen forties. Yeah, it's about power. Yeah. It's about understanding the nature of power. So they'll do they'll do bad things to working class people to maintain that power. Mm-hmm. And this has been the historic trend of the Tory Party. They will do bad things all the time to the working classes. So whether that's repealing corn laws or making up be oppressive or making more oppressive laws on top of those laws once they repeal them, is to understand that they always want to maintain power yeah and they're very good at it and they're very good at getting the working class to vote against their mm. own class, class interests, interests. Mm. Yeah. but i do think um i think a key part of this picture is um to put it bluntly we need to kind of destroy the labor party like and i think that yeah um, yeah, yeah we're up, we're up for th- that on the I th- show i think, <laughs> I think the, there's an anarchist position that sort of says oh we should all just leave labor and organize workplaces but i think that um the, the, the risk with that strategy is that it seeds to it, it basically it fetishizes the economic struggle right struggle in workplaces at the expense of the political struggle mm-hmm. and I do think the left in this country is over overemphasizes the political struggle way too much and you see this with some of the kind of like le- left media outlets like they overemphasize what's happening in Parliament and it becomes quite gossipy and they it's don't it's so annoying it's so annoying they don't like follow movements and organizing they don't but, follow. I mean, we will talk about like what's going on in Parliament, like on this show, like as a joke. But but actually, we don't follow the politics. We follow the how you create theory into practice and movements and issues. Because it's part of the picture, right? Like political strategy is part of the p- picture, but it's not um it, like it's not the whole picture. And the problem with these Labourists is they think that oh, if we can just get a Labour government, then everything will be fine. And yeah. it's like tell that to the hundreds of thousands of dead Iraqis. Like a Labour government that isn't held to account by powerful left-wing institutions yeah. and internationalist anti-racist institutions will be a disaster. It will yeah. absolutely be a disaster. And, but, and so I think if we're serious about destroying the Labour Party, what we need to do is we need to we need to politically organise within our trade unions and we need to do... And, it's, you know, Sharon Graham getting elected to Unite is a really positive step because she pointedly didn't go to the Labour Party conference and she said, I've got workers out on strike, I'm going to prioritise that. If you can get big, the big funders of the Labour Party, the big trade unions, to threaten to and to actually withdraw funding and sever the link and disaffiliate from Labour, then you're in a game changer because then suddenly Keir Starmer's Labour becomes like the party of just millionaires and it's mm. like well in what sense are you the Labour Party if mm. the institutions of the working class have abandoned you now that's a really big project it's very very difficult to persuade big trade unions to abandon Labour but if uh, if we're serious that's the kind of threats that we need to be making because like you said it's about power what power do we have as the, as the international working class the answer one of the big parts of the picture is that we can organise within our institutions namely our trade unions and threaten to withhold funding and to disaffiliate but I think what we also have to be mindful of is 
the history of this country, especially the, the most recent, like post-war history, has been seen. Like, so the coalition or the movement of power or working class rights culminated in the 70s, right? So the idea of the winter of discontent, this is etched into this country's mind. Unions took over a three-day week, rolling power cuts, power being held to account by the working classes. And, and now from the, working, from, the, from the people of power's point of view, this has been a growth, a movement from the 19th century, the Chartists onwards up into the 1970s, working people getting more and more power. Mm. So juxtaposed to this, you have the realm of the, post, the postmodernists, the, the idea that politics could change. So bringing into these other meta-narratives, these smaller narratives into the meta-narratives, so race, gender. So the realm of politics becomes something real where you can affect real change. Unions, we need to smash them. So you can see how politics has become the playground now because this is the narrative since since the 1970s onwards. Yeah, but I think um, it, part of what the picture here is that we're in the imperial core. We're in Britain. Uh, we have a very good you know social wage here. The NHS is one of the best health systems in the world. Very, very good education. Very, very good transport. Very, very good uh, public services. Like the, the working class in this country does benefit from imperial systems to an extent, right? Whereas if you mm -hmm. go to someone like Bangladesh or someone like Colombia, you've got people who try to organize workplaces and they're being killed, right? That's the level of class conflict. <laughs> Fanon has this great quote, right, in The Wretched of the Earth where he's talking about how in places like Britain, in the Imperial Metropole, you learn about class relations like on your father's knee or you learn about it in school and you, you, you're kind of taught it, right, through hegemony. Mm. Whereas in the colonies, you learn it through the barrel of a gun. You know that you do what your boss says because if you don't, you've seen your colleague being shot for trying to organize a strike. Mm. But you see, this is where I was going to come, it comes back to where you're from. Your habitats, you, where you've where you've kind of uh, uh, kind of um, cultivated this view, has been in a, in a place of conflict. Yep. So you've been able to develop this kind of double consciousness. Yeah. So you right. can see what the thing is while being in it. Yeah. W, w. B. Du Bois and double consciousness is vital. Like I'm so glad you raised that because, uh, like, as lawyers, I think there's something we can learn from that. Like, obviously, W. Du Bois is talking about the experience of being like African American or Black mm. in in, uh, in America, but like. His concept is so useful because he's basically saying you sort of have to think in two ways, right? Yeah. And as lawyers, I'm not I'm not trying to make a shallow conflation between race and being no, no, a, a no, conscious no, no. lawyer. Yeah. But I've heard people yeah. as well. yeah, I've yeah, heard yeah. people apply this theory to like, yeah. well, what does it mean to be a radical lawyer? You go into court and you have to sort of pretend to respect the legal system. You have to pretend to defer to the liberal legal order, and then you leave court and you're like, obviously I'm a communist. I want to overthrow this, and it is a bit jarring. <laughs> but it's also something that we have to learn to. But that grapple. critical gaze, the, the idea of developing a critical gaze, it's not. If like I said to you. Most people in your profession are coming from a particular class background, so they don't need to develop that gaze. And like yeah, you said, yeah. and so I think I think that like and like I said, I I do derive a lot of strength from the Irish Republican yeah. tradition. Even though I'm a communist, I I emerged out of the Irish Republican tradition, and I just think the working class where I come from, where I grew up in the six counties, has this attitude of kind of like um, there's a certain confidence that comes from saying, "Do not push us too far, do not mess with us," because we have the Irish Republican physical force tradition, and if you push us too far, we will we will rediscover like our power to violently confront British imperialism. And, see, and I, the British left doesn't really have that. And the idea, so like when you read like Fanon and the Wretched of the Earth, the idea that violence can be uh, can achieve political aims, right? <laughs> always, always a violent phenomenon. And I said this to some of the liberal lawyers at my uh, at my chambers. They were sort of like, um, we were talking about like uh, Brexit and all this kind of stuff. And they were very, very liberal. And I was sort of saying like, have you thought about the consequences for Britain's oldest colony? And they were like, no, obviously not. I'm British. 
cool. Well, and like you, you have these liberals who like they try and read Fanon and they try and strip the violence out of Fanon, and it's like, how could you do that? Like, read the first the first chapter, the first paragraph of the first chapter of Wretched of the Earth says decolonization is always a final phenomenon. It's like, did mm-hmm. you think he was joking? Like, it's not ambiguous. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> but, um, one of the things I just wanted to bring it back to, just that we're we're coming to the end of the show now. Frank could talk to you all day, but one of the things we were talking about, sort of power and the courtroom, but also talking about the Labour Party and trade unions. So one of the things that we've kind of, in our recovery from the 2019 defeat, let's call it, one of the things that we sort of talk about is practically, like where do we channel our energies politically? And I guess for us, we talk a lot, we've spoken on the show before about like the things we should be pushing for. So things like... um, removing first like electoral changes so removing first past the post like that type of thing like do you think that's the sort of thing we should be thinking about or do you think yeah like how do you think we should be thinking obviously it's all long term and unfortunately we might not even benefit from this in our lifetime but what are the sorts of things that we should be pushing for politically practically in order to get even like a bit more like just not on the back foot every fucking day because that's what we are at the moment. So I, I think it's a really good question, and um, and I only have a very sketched sort of answer because the political organisation in this country is so poor and it's in such disarray. Like the left in this country is really poorly organised. And just to say as well, obviously we're seeing like boundaries changing as well. Like Tories, as Tisa was saying, like just grabbing power by any means. We're going to see more voter suppression here as well. I, th- I think a key part of the picture is that we cannot answer the question you've just asked, which is the vital question, right? Effectively, you're asking what should the left's strategy be, right? Mm-hmm. And, where sh- and, and as part of that question, where should we be allocating our resources? And I think this is something I had to think about when I chose to become a lawyer, and it felt like a very individual choice. It was like, I am going to go and personally prosecute Israeli war criminals, when really the struggle that emancipates Palestine is the same which related to the struggle that emancipates all of humanity, it's um, it's a it's a collective struggle, and so I think the the short answer to your question is that we need to answer it collectively, which means we need to find institutions in which we can we can have these strategic conversations and then collectively carry out a strategy. Because if we're all doing it individually, oh, maybe I should be a lawyer, maybe I should be a doctor, maybe I should go to Palestine, maybe it's like we'll just be like for every person going in the right direction, someone will be going in the wrong direction. And and even if we went in any direction, it would be good if we did it all together. But if we don't, then we just don't have the organization. So getting organized and answering, answering these strategic questions is a key part of the picture. And then I think in Britain, a massive part of the problem is that the British left most of the British left does not understand imperialism, does not understand what it is, and therefore has no theory about how to act internationally. And so we have this so-called methodological nationalism where we think, oh, if we just get into power in Britain, then somehow we can implement socialism in one country. It's absurd. Tell that to all the Bangladeshis who are making uh, our clothes in sweatshops that collapse and kill thousands of people. Tell that to the millions of people in Iraq who've been displaced by British bombs. Like, we need... Uh, to think internationally. And I think the, the state of political organization is so bad at an international level that even to ask the question, what would an international political organization look like? What would a revived kind of communist international look like is a vital question. And I think part of the way that I've personally attempted to approach this, and this is a very naive approach, and I, I'm really happy to be criticized for it. And you know, if, if, if anyone listening to this thinks I'm chatting shit, then just DM me or whatever and say, like, I think you've gone wrong, comrade. But <laughs> I think... I think we need to be creating institutions that actually operate internationally. And so that's why I've taken time to go and like spend time at the Learning Cooperative, because there's something really important about 
being in a, an organization where every week I speak to someone in Gaza, I speak to someone in Lebanon, I speak to someone in Venezuela, and it makes those places less abstract. It's like, oh, my, I've, I've got friends and comrades in these places, like someone in Brazil, someone in Mexico. So we're trying to build this international institution that can operate, can think, can act internationally. And, I, and my hope is that out of that kind of class struggle, like out of that kind of organization, organic ties will emerge so we can actually start to try and think internationally. Because right now the British left does not think internationally. What about nationalism? <laughs> that's that, 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 is a, that is a that's powder keg. That, 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 that's, that's the falling aside. So whenever you create international international issues or supranational supranational organisations, this is the, always the falling issue. Brexit, yeah. right? Yeah. Well, the, the, the short answer is that we need to create the um, we need to forge an international working class agent that's capable of acting as the international working class. And to do that, we need to find ways of dismantling national borders and stepping into a true uh, like coalition of the international working class. What the working class lack, what the what the upper class have. That solidarity. So, uh, looking yeah, at yeah. So posh, the, posh solidarity is real. So the elite solidarity <laughs> is crazy, right? And it, and it stretches across international boundaries. Capital is international and labour isn't. And 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 Marx in in John Smith quotes this in the book I was mentioning mm-hmm. earlier. He, Marx said in in like 1870 or something, so 150 years ago, mm-hmm. said, um, you know, cap, I paraphrase right, but he basically said capital is international. Mm-hmm. The uh, the working class institutions need to become international. 150 years ago, he was saying our working class inst- institutions need to become international. And here we are in 2022 nearly, and the British Labour Party is still like, oh, if we can only get power in Britain. It's like, mate, international. It needs to be international. Listeners, that was a lot. That was a lot, but that was absolutely Frank, you're brilliant. Six. Frank, you're sick. You come anytime. If you want to hear more, uh, more from Frank, then you've got to become a patron. Head over to Patreon now. We've got another little mini-side. Frank, that was absolutely... My mind is blown. I love that, One Frank. of those episodes, it just like makes you think... Yeah, I like the back and forth. The back and forth, yeah, yeah. forth, but also like is inspiring as well. Um, Frank, thank you so much for thank joining the show. Thank you for having me so much. Really, really enjoyed talking to you guys. Brilliant, brilliant. We'll see you next week, guys. See you next Bye. week. Thank you for listening to Surviving Society with Chantal and Tiso. You can now continue the conversation with us on Twitter and Instagram. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing.